I should greet you with the traditional Jewish greeting, which is the word shalom. Now, some of you know the proper response when I, when, when I say shalom to you. You all want to say back to me the same word. It's the, it's the Jewish greeting. So if I say shalom, you all say? Shalom. Yeah, that's better. Do you know what it means? Oh, yeah. It means, it means peace. It also means hello and goodbye. So it's kind of an all-purpose greeting this morning. I, I bring it to you mostly with the meaning of peace. Um, yeah, I saw the hands go up there. A lot of you do know somebody who's Jewish. And I don't know if you've ever had a conversation with them, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm Jewish, believer in Jesus. And um, maybe you've discovered or maybe you know that Jewish people are not raised to, you know, be positive towards Jesus. We're basically raised to say no to him. And in today's Jewish community, which is very secular, almost any spirituality is okay, but Jesus remains the big no. And you really get to see this when, um, well, like if you were ever out on the, uh, some of the streets of the large cities where we go, and we hand out a lot of literature. That's one of the things we do in our ministry to kind of raise the issue of Jesus. So I've done, I've done a good amount of this. And Jewish person often comes along and they'll say something like, you should be ashamed of yourself for believing in Jesus. Or I used to get this one a lot. Does your mother know you're doing this? <laughs> but more and more we get the kind of response we really want to hear. How can you be Jewish and believe in Jesus? Question we love to answer. Well, this morning we kind of want to explore a little bit about uh, what Steve just mentioned, that there are uh, some holidays that we're in the midst of the season now within the Jewish community. And you know, the thing is, when God gave the, um, the holidays to ancient Israel right there in the Old Testament, he always intended, he always intended that they should point ultimately to who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And so we're going to um, start up a little PowerPoint here and kind of lead through this uh, this morning. And, all right. So right now, we are in the middle of a season called the High Holy Days, which, um, you know, you'll, you'll see about what the, this guy is blowing into in a second. We've got two things going on here that the Jewish community does during this year. The first, which was actually last Wednesday night, is called Rosh Hashanah, marks the beginning of the... Jewish year, the beginning of this period, though biblically, it's called the Feast of Trumpets. But to this very day, you still, uh, you still play a kind of a trumpet. It's a ram's horn called a, a shofar. And start, starting this Friday night is the Day of Atonement called Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the Jewish year when you're supposed to fast for 24 hours, so this guy's not too happy because he's got nothing on his plate there, but you're supposed to uh, be fasting for this time. And this whole season is meant mostly to be a period of reflection and repentance and considering the fact that we've sinned against God and we've sinned against other people. We've wronged them. And we need to, we need to make this up in some way. 
Jewish community today is pretty secular. We don't think about sin any more than the average person in the street does. We don't know the word. We don't get it. But I had this interesting conversation. I was in Israel uh, some years ago on an evangelism uh, trip. So we're talking to all these Israelis. One young guy there says something we hear a lot from Jewish people as an objection to the gospel. He said, if Jesus is the Messiah, then why isn't there peace in the world? He said, we're at war on every side. Why isn't there peace? It's a great question. If Jesus is who he said he's supposed to be, if he's the, the king, if he's bringing in the kingdom of God, if he's the savior, then has anything changed? Why are we still have wars on all sides? Here's what I said to the guy. I said to him, you know, God could snap his fingers and bring peace this second to the whole world. But if we didn't change inside, in our hearts, we'd mess the world up again in just a couple of weeks. I said, if you want peace in this world, the problems of this world come from what's inside of us. You want, you want peace in this world, you need to make your peace with God through the way that he's set up, through Jesus. And he'll turn you into the kind of person who can bring his peace to the rest of the world. Because when you think about it, most problems in this world are due to people. How we treat each other, how we don't treat each other. Sometimes I tell my colleagues uh, at Jews for Jesus up in the city, up in San Francisco, say, if we could only get rid of the people, then we could finally live in peace. And they look at me funny. Because, you know, we're the problem. Us. Humanity. During this time of year, we're supposed to be reflecting on this. Um, it's probably the one time of year when even uh, secular Jewish people think about sin. See, the best way I can explain it to you is like this. Jewish people might not go to the synagogue at other times a year, but a lot of people go during this season the way some people only go to church on Christmas or Easter. It's sort of what you do. It's the force of tradition. So whether you believe or not, you go to the synagogue on these days and you spend all day long on the second of the holidays, the Yom Kippur, uh, praying prayers, asking God to forgive your sins. There's liturgy, there's special uh, recitals, there's things you sing, and it's all designed to get you into this, this mindset of something's not right. We've wronged God, we've wronged one another, we've wronged ourselves, we've wronged the environment. We need to make that right. And you say, well, how do Jewish people... Um, try to make it right. Well, biblically, whenever we sinned against the Lord, what did we do? We brought a sacrifice of some kind of animal. He forgave our sins. Today, Jews don't do that. There's no temple in Jerusalem. There's no priesthood. There's no one to have officiate at the sacrifices. So Judaism actually developed a whole idea that to have your sins forgiven today, all you need to do is to repent to do deeds of charity, to fast, and um, to pray, and God will forgive your sins. Not a biblical picture, but that, that's where it's at today. And typically we wish one another that, uh, we'll be ins- that God will inscribe you in the book of life for one more year if he forgives your sins, and if you've repented, then the hope is that God would inscribe you in the book of life for one more year. Actually, a uh, <clears throat> concept that goes back to the, to the scriptures here. Um, 
Now here Moses is talking to God, see. Exodus 32. Now forgive their sins. This is just after they built the golden calf and really sinned flagrantly against God. Forgive their sin, Moses says, but if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. And God replies, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. And then carrying into the New Testament, Paul speaks about fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And Revelation speaks of all believers whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. But we know as Christians that the way into that book of life is not through fasting for 24 hours and not even through going through long days of of confession and prayer, as important as that all is, but it comes through what Jesus has done in making himself the final sacrifice for us. Now, great, wonderful picture of all of this. In the synagogue, every year, you read from Genesis 22 during this season, one of the books you read from. And it's a great story of how God tested Abraham. And he said, Abraham. And Abraham says, here I am. And then God says, excuse me, a very strange request. He says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Asks Abraham to offer up his son. What's up with that? Well, we never read that Abraham complained back to God. Instead, we we read through the chapter that he took Isaac and they went. And Isaac wasn't complaining. And they they had the wood for for the fire and to make the altar. And they had the ropes to tie Isaac up on the altar. And finally, Isaac says, you know, we've got all this equipment. Where's, where, where's the lamb for the, for the burnt offering? God says, well, you know, God will provide, my son. They keep on going. Get up to the mountaintop. Abraham takes his son Isaac and ties him up on the altar. And a lot of people try and psychologize this and say, well, what was Abraham thinking? You know, what was Isaac thinking? Is this why Isaac got traumatized? Maybe this is why he was the way he was later in life. It doesn't tell us any of that. People want to know what everyone's thinking, you know. But all it says is that he, he bound Isaac and raised the knife to kill him. And then the angel of the Lord cries out a second time. Says, Abraham, Abraham. And he goes, here I am. And God says, now, don't touch him. Don't lay a hand on the boy because now I know that you love me because you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And they look up and there in the bushes is a ram and they sacrifice the ram as the burnt offering instead of Isaac. And Abraham gives a name to that place because God had provided. He called it Adonai the Lord will provide. There's even a, a church chorus. I don't know if you ever sing it here. It's, it's called Jehovah Jireh, which is kind of the Englishized, Anglicized version of the Hebrew name, the Lord will provide. And I love that chorus because it's half in Hebrew, half in English. You have to kind of make both halves rhyme. You have to kind of sing Jehovah Jireh, my provider, and just make it all fit together like that. And it's a lot of fun. But it reminds us of this great story. Now, what's it got to do with Jesus? I hope you can see this. 
This is a painting by a, a famous Jewish painter, Mark Chagall was his name. Not a believer in Jesus, as far as we know. Painted a lot of biblical scenes, painted um, scenes of his life in Europe. But this is called The Sacrifice of Isaac. And you see he's got Abraham there with the knife. He's got Isaac on the altar. He's got the angel of the Lord. And off to the, to, to the left side is the, the ram that's caught, caught in the bushes. Now, if you can see it on top, in the upper right corner, there's a little scene of, who would have guessed, Jesus carrying the cross. From a Jewish painter, not a believer, what's it all about? What's it all about? Well, Mark Chagall, I think he, he saw a connection with the Old and the New Testament. To be honest, he didn't see Jesus the same way that we were. Okay, if someone can grab the lights a moment, that, would, that might help. Okay. And so maybe now you can see the, the little scene up there. And so, um, what's going on is that for Mark Chagall, Jesus was... Um, a martyr, like other Jewish people who last, lost their lives over the years. But he still made that connection. The blood from the cross is dripping down onto the scene of Abraham and Isaac. And while I don't think Chagall quite saw it this way, as believers, we know one of the most famous verses in the New Testament. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I think John just may have been thinking back to Genesis 22, when Abraham was asked to offer his only son, whom he loved. But at the last moment, God stopped it, and there was a substitute. But in the New Testament... We learn that God the Father sent his son, his only son, whom he loved, to be the sacrifice for our sin. And like Isaac, Jesus was also very willing. Isaac didn't put up a fight. And Jesus went to the cross willing to be the sacrifice for our sins. Wow. Old Testament, New Testament connection going on there. For most of my people in this season of the year... This connection is not a real connection. It's not a connection most Jewish people want to hear about. And we go to the synagogue, we pray, we fast. But God needs something more than that. And that's why he sent the sacrifice of his son. Just amazingly a graphic reminder in this painting. Um, this probably should have said this slide left intentionally blank, like on those forms you get from the bank. It was. So that's the first set of holidays during this year, the High Holy Days. Then we come to something that is um, more joyful a few days later, but it's along the same themes. We're talking about God's provision. Adonai Yireh, Jehovah Jireh, God provided. He provided a ram back then, but for us today, for Jews and Gentiles today, he's provided Jesus, the Messiah to be the atonement for our sins. And once our sins are atoned for, we can get to rejoice in all the other, God, all the other provisions God has for us. 
Um, in about a week and a half, we're going to have the Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot. Um, like a lot of the holidays, it's about God's provision. I'm going to kind of go through this quickly, but I'll summarize here. Maybe you remember from the biblical story, when God brought us out of Egypt, he provided the food for us in the desert every day, the manna, it was called, so that we wouldn't starve. He provided clothing. I led you through the desert, and your clothes did not wear out, nor did the sandals on your feet. He provided shelter. Your descendants will know that I made the Israelites live in booze when I brought them out of the Egypt. Food, clothing, shelter. This is what God provided for his people. And this last one, the idea of the shelter, is what we um, celebrate during this holiday, where once again we celebrate the Lord, our provider. So Jewish people will build a booth to live in for the week of the holiday. It can be fancy, it can be simple. What does Jesus have to do with this holiday? If you go back to the New Testament, it was a little different than it was today because you still had the temple standing in Jerusalem. And this meant that you were going to have probably millions of pilgrims from all over the Mediterranean area, Jewish pilgrims, come to Jerusalem to celebrate this holiday. And it lasted a week. And the very last day of the holiday, back then, but not today, there was a big water show. A big water show. And the rabbi said, hey, if you haven't seen this, you haven't seen anything. On this very day, the last and greatest day of the feast, what did Jesus do? He stood up and he said in a loud voice, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Speaking of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus took what the people were thinking about, the water display, the pageantry that was going on in connection with that, the singing, the parading, and he made this connection to himself. And he said, hey, you're seeing that water out there, but if you come to me, you're going to be seeing streams of living water. You're going to have living water flowing out of your very heart. And when people heard of this, heard Jesus say this, he accomplished exactly what he wanted to accomplish. People started having a conversation about him. Some people, when they heard this, said, hey, he's the prophet. Others said, he's the Christ, the Messiah. And others said, no. And others said, yes. And they have a big argument. And thus, the people were divided because of Jesus. He got them thinking. He got them talking. He got them answering the question, who am I? Who is Jesus? And because there were also large candelabra lit in the temple for this whole week of the holiday, Jesus made another connection. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus was great at making connections. And on this holiday, while we're celebrating God's provision of booths in the wilderness, Jesus says, hey, I've got something more for you. There's more provision, a greater provision. Living water, the Holy Spirit. The light of the world, that's me, he said. And he's talking about all these wonderful provisions that would come through faith in him. i got to tell you that that is a great communication thing if you have Jewish friends. Connect to something that they're thinking about. 
You probably want to get to know them first, find out what their, you know, their life is, their questions. But I'll show you what a connection is like. So we go out into um, a lot of urban areas. And so you go downtown, a lot of people get literature from this person, that person. Some people are tired of that. So we connect. We have a track called Beware of Religious Fanatics, handing out pamphlets. <laughs> and so somebody gets this and, you know, we, the, the gospel is in there. You know, we get into a conversation. Or also great for the urban areas. We've got this track called Welcome to the Jews for Jesus Bar. And people are like, oh, the bar, where is that? I want to go there. But they read this and they discover that bar is a biblical word for the son. S-O-N is in the son of God. And so the Jews for Jesus Bar is not a place. It's a person. It's Jesus. So they read that and we make that connection. It was something Jesus and the apostles uh, did a lot. So the upshot of all of this is that we have a hope that um, God has given us in Christ. Here's a painting of the Transfiguration, um, kind of abstract style a little. I'm having this up there because I'm thinking of the story of the Transfiguration when Peter and James and John went out with with Jesus, and then they saw Jesus on top of the mountain glowing. You remember that? And Moses was with him, and Elijah. And what does Peter say? Peter says, in the midst of this great vision, Peter says, it's good that we're here. Let's build three booths. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Why did he say that? Some people think, you know, Peter had a reputation for just you know, running off at the mouth sometimes, saying anything, being impetuous. So people go, oh, Peter was just babbling. He didn't know what else to say. I don't think so. I mean, if he was just babbling, he might as well have just said, hey, it's good that we're here. Why don't we just all roll down the hill together? But he had a reason that he said, let's build three booths. In the prophet Zechariah, Old Testament prophet, last chapter says that at the end of days, all the nations of the world will come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. I don't know how that's going to pan out. But I do know that Peter must have been thinking of that because he was seeing Jesus glorified. And he's saying, wow, this is it. This is the end. This is the kingdom. This is it. It's ready to celebrate Tabernacles. And what he had to learn with the other apostles is that that was a foretaste. And before Jesus would come in his glory, first he had to come humbly and die for our sins. Kind of full circle. You know, there's a vision of the very end during the Feast of Tabernacles. But before that happens, we circle back again to Rosh Hashanah and the Day of Atonement. And we realize before the final redemption of this world needs to come the atonement for what makes this world wrong, for the sin that's part of our lives. It's a heavy season. We think about what's wrong with the world. We think about the solution. We think about how we can celebrate and live with God once we're redeemed. Yeah, that's the uh, Zechariah passage. also says if they don't celebrate tabernacles, they won't get any rain. 
And that's, that is it. That's the last slide. So this is the picture. You move from a broken world that needs redemption. You move to God's solution for that brokenness. What Jesus has done for us. Can't unpack this all now. But you see where it's going. And once your brokenness begins to be healed, then you can enjoy the blessings and the celebration that God wants in our lives. Those of you who are here today as Christians recognize this. Most of my Jewish people don't. And um, you can pray with us that during this season, some will come to recognize Jesus as the one on whom all of this focuses. I just want to take a quick moment as we wrap up here just to let you know a little bit about what's happening in our ministry, um, not just during this season, but uh, throughout the year. Uh, Some of you know about Jews for Jesus. Um, Here's what I would like you to do. Take out this card that should be in your bulletins. We're going to go through a very ancient Jews for Jesus ceremony. It's called the ceremony of tearing the card in unison. It's very ancient. So we're going to bend it towards yourself and away from yourself. And on the count of three, we're going to tear it at the same moment. Okay, one and two and three. Yeah, four, four five or six is okay. Um, so what's up with this card? If you fill in your name and address and there's a spot for your email here, we... Some of you get uh, our communications already, but we counted a privilege to be able to, to uh, include you in receiving our monthly Jews for Jesus newsletter. kind of looks like this here. To let you know what God's doing in the Jewish community, to let you know about things you can pray for, to help you share your faith with Jewish friends, to connect the Old and New Testament dots. Our director, David Brickner, has a devotional to encourage you in your faith uh, each month. And... Um, Yeah, we also have a once a month email communication, so you can put your email down for that too. The small part of the card, take home, it's it's something to be like a little prayer reminder. Um, I'll give you something to pray for. Um, We are in like 26 cities around the world in 14 countries, okay? We do a lot of literature. We do a lot of media work. Most of our work is out there engaging the people one-on-one. This past summer, we... um, we had an evangelism outreach in New York City um, where we, we saw uh, one Jewish person and eight non-Jews came to faith in Christ during the outreach, which lasted the month of July. And then there were 107 other Jewish people who left us their contact info. They're, they're saying, hey, we want to hear more about Jesus. We're that open. Let me know. So we're following up on all these, all these people right now. Pray for the follow-up team. Uh, even though the campaign was in July, the follow-up takes, takes time, and we're going to try and connect with all these people. Pray that we'll see more Jewish people from that coming to faith. Um, another way you can be involved with us, we put a literature table outside the sanctuary, and um, you can get some free literature there. You can get some things that are not so free. Uh, that's what the sign actually says. And... Um, one thing I'll mention is I, I, I co-wrote a book called Christ and the Feast of Pentecost, which, of course, is uh, in the springtime, not in the fall. But 
a great book if you want to connect the dots between an Old Testament festival and what Jesus has done in our lives, okay? Um, there'll be an offering received for Jews for Jesus, and when that happens, anything you give is going towards our ministry, but if you're not giving, you can still fill out the card and drop it into the same uh, basket or plate, and uh, join us in praying that some of the spiritual realities of these festivals will impact the Jewish community even more during this year. I don't think I really have time for the, uh, for the video clip unless you give an okay, Steve. Go ahead. He's casual. Okay, so I want to give you one final visual on our outreach to get, get you a better idea of, um, of what it's like. So I'm going to ask that we can run about a two-and-a-half-minute video clip. Hitting the streets of the Big Apple. It's a Jews for Jesus tradition that began in 1974. We come to New York to make the Messiahship of Jesus an unavoidable issue to our Jewish people. While many New Yorkers are familiar with the ministry, the age-old question of who is Jesus remains controversial. Jesus is not to be worshipped. Jesus is was Jesus. That's it. No such thing as Jews for Jesus is something that was made up out of somebody's capacious cup. Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Though the question is old, it remains relevant today. Me who? Who is he? That's the most important question anyone can ever ask in this life. Who is Jesus? What's your opinion? Who do you think Jesus was? Who do you think Jesus is? I can't really tell if there is a Jesus or not. Who do you think Jesus is? Messiah, Allah, Jehovah. God is one God, honey. Not only do they ask the question, who is he? They wear it. Part of Jews for Jesus' bold street ministry philosophy. We're fanatical in the sense that we believe strongly in what we believe. Do you believe in Jesus, or who do you think he is? I think Jewish is more the culture than anything else. It's about being Jewish. It doesn't mean anything more than that. I don't believe in you. Okay, go away. If you can reach a hardened New Yorker and get them to think about a message that's been around for 2,000 years, then you can reach anybody, anywhere. And then there's something that awakens in us. We have a wonderful group of young people here, passionate about Christ, passionate about evangelism. I really like having conversations about who Jesus is and why he's so special. My soul cries out and says, I have to reach them, and never should I give up. It's awakening the Jewish community, and if we don't do it, who's going to do it? This is the future of Jewish missions. This is the future of Jews for Jesus. So that gives you a, a little glimpse of what our life is like when we're out there on some of these outreaches. Um, pray for us. If, if God puts it on your heart, fill out the card, perhaps give a gift. But I've really enjoyed being here with you today. It's been a blessing. I'll greet a lot of you at the table. Thanks for your flexibility here, Steve. And I'll ask that you come back up.